Hello and welcome to Football 360. This week's one-to-one -one is with a guy called Jamie Brassington. Jamie's currently the head of goalkeeping at Throtter in Reykjavik in Iceland. It's his second spell there uh, and he, uh, he's experienced an awful lot for a fairly young coach. Uh, as, a, as a player, he, he was at Luton as a young kid um, before playing a reasonable amount of semi-professional football whilst starting to develop his coaching career. Uh, he coached at Burton Albion uh, in the academy there before moving on to Colchester United. So he has uh, a lot of experience of, uh, of the professional game in the UK and particularly developing young players in English professional clubs. Um, but then, uh, as I say, he's been in, he's been in Iceland and uh, his most interesting assignment for me anyway was uh, being appointed as the, the national team head of goalkeeping uh, for Taiwan when Louis Lancaster was the, the national team manager there. Uh, where he had to deal with a, a number of number of barriers, including the language barrier, including some cultural challenges. Um, but uh, his journey is one that I find inspirational, really interesting to listen to his experiences. Some of his anecdotes are brilliant. Uh, his reflections on Icelandic football culture um, and some of the reasons why it's an amazing place to work for him at the moment, um, and an amazing country to work in and an amazing country to be a football fan. Um, so I think you're all really going to enjoy this. Um, I really really think that Jamie is, uh, is an awful lot ahead of him uh, as a coach and I think his body of work already is very impressive so uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the second uh, edition of Football 360 for this season. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Jamie Brassington onto the show. Hi Jamie, how are you doing? I'm doing good, how are things with you? Good, thanks, mate. Not too bad, not too bad. We haven't started football here yet, but um, getting pretty close to it. So, uh, yeah, anticipation is, uh, yeah, is peak, near peak level now, to be honest, for me. So, good stuff, good stuff. So, um, right, I'm going to go straight into it, uh, ask you uh, three or four questions just to, just as an icebreaker, a warm-up, if you like. Yep. So, to start off with, um, your favourite player ever and why? Uh, so being a goalkeeper coach, this might be a bit of a surprise to you, but Alan Shearer is uh, is my favourite player. Obviously, growing up watching him, Black, yeah. Newcastle. Uh, yeah, I just used to love the way he played, and for me, he was someone I've always looked up to. Um, so yeah, I just thought he was a fantastic role model for people to watch. Good, good. That's a, you're the first one to mention Alan Shearer, but I think he's, uh, there's pretty good reasons there, so not bad. Um, okay, secondly, your, your favourite um, your favourite team ever. So, uh, not necessarily a favourite club, but the favourite team that you enjoyed watching, the favourite 11 players. Uh, when Mourinho first went to Chelsea, I uh, yep. enjoyed his teams there. Um, it was something different for me. I, th I think I like the way he sort of personified that team, the way they worked, what they achieved, obviously conceding so few goals during the season when they won the yep. league as well. I'd say they're up there and obviously Barcelona, during the times of Guardiola when they're winning the Champions League, I think they were just fantastic to watch. Yeah, two two slightly opposing kind of styles of football in some respects, or different approaches, but appreciate them for different reasons. A hundred percent. For me, there's more than one way to play, and I think if you're a master of either one, then you deserve the credit that you get for that. Brilliant, great answer, nice one. Okay, okay, a little bit left field this one, um, but along a similar theme as we were talking there with the, the two managers. So. You are your. Uh, you, there, there are two teams playing in a cup final. Let's say there are twenty-two best players in 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 the world. You're the chairman of, of one of those teams. You have to pick a manager to get you a result. So not to build kind of an ethos, not to not to build from kind of the foundations upwards. Literally just to take that group and have a, a mini camp and then win that game. Um, so from a tactical perspective or whatever it takes to get over the line and, and win that game, who would you choose and why? I think I'm choosing Mourinho. He's, he won, obviously, the Champions League with Porto. He's gone yeah. there with and, and delivered with Inter. Managed the best clubs, managed the biggest players. He knows what it takes to win on a big occasion. So, for me, I'm taking him all day. Love it, love it. You, you're not the first person who said that, that's for sure. And with good reason. Okay, um, final question. Tell me and tell tell our listeners the uh, or something about Jamie Brassington that uh, not many people will know. So it could be something completely left field, outside of football. Yeah, tell tell us something out there that um, that's a little bit different about you. Uh, yeah, to be fair, not a lot of people know a lot about me anyway. So this this should be. <laughs> but yeah, from from a very random point of view, I I had a when I was at school, I was probably like twelve, thirteen. 
I actually had a, a story that I wrote it for my English paper publishing a book. So I'm wow, theoretically okay. a published author. Very good, very good. What was the story about? It, it was uh, about Hercules. Okay. We had, to, we had to make some up in a, just a short story, about a page long, and just went into a book with all other kids through competition. And yeah, mine was selected to, to go in. Nice. Okay. So you've got something to fall back on if uh, football doesn't work out. Yeah, I, I don't write that much these days, so hopefully not. <laughs> cool. Okay. Awesome. That's a, a really nice start. Um, okay. Let's go into it. So. Obviously, you, you, you worked in Burton's Academy for a while before going out to Iceland. Yep. Um, I want to focus on the change that you experienced, you know, the, the, the experience that you, you underwent um, in that move, uh, the realisations and, and kind of the, the stuff that you needed to adjust to in Ireland. We've had some great conversations over time mm -hmm. about your experiences there. And I, I really want to get some of those out and, and share them with a wider audience because I found them incredibly interesting. So. Can you can you tell me a little bit about I mean first of all first impressions when you got to Iceland and then how how kind of life grew on you a little bit there and how football and the changes in in kind of um, or the differences between the UK and, and Iceland how they kind of occurred to you and, and, and how you processed that yeah so I, I arrived in Iceland in in March and there was snow covering everywhere in the sort of 45 minute drive from the airport into into the city where we're based and obviously back home snow and there might be one inch of snow on the floor and sessions are getting cancelled yeah i was chatting with the manager on the way in like is this normally he's like yeah we just we just keep going all the way through here and i was like okay got to the training ground and i was fortunate enough after about 10 minutes of arriving at the training ground i was i was in my first session um the manager had a one-to-one -one with one of our center backs who was getting back fit at lunchtime he he come from work come and did an hour and a half training for, on his lunch break and then and then went back to work and so straight away for me this the the dedication of people uh over here towards football and their love for football was nice. a, a massive like eye-opener to what I, what i was to expect really obviously back home the love of football's high and obviously you've got all the professional leagues but it, it is massively rivaled here everyone everyone i've met has a football team or enjoys football there might be a handful of people that I've, I've met that haven't believed um, yeah. in that. So, yeah, I just think the love for football here has totally outclipsed everything I expected. And I, I think to a certain extent at times they are more passionate about their development uh, as a person, as a player, than maybe what some people are back home. And why do you think that is? Uh, I, I think there's, there's obviously Iceland's quite a developed country, but I, I, there's not masses and massive opportunities for people over here and sure. I, think they, I think they do see football professionally whether that's in whether it's in England, Germany, Spain, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, there's a few guys playing in Russia. I think they see it as a viable career and, and a way to go and further their lives, see the world and then come back after they've finished playing. Yeah okay okay and um, I mean what, what's the, what's the, the competitors in terms of other sports over there? Uh, so the, there's a handball league, there's um, a basketball league, and and then there's, there's football. They're the big ones, and then there's like for, for the girls, there's uh, volleyball. Um, they do have a bit of ice hockey here, but I I don't know a lot about that. So yeah, I would say for me, football's probably the, by far the biggest sport. Yeah. But handball and basketball are also massive, and it, it's it's really interesting to see um sort of the mixture of people that will support every team at one club so whether they've got just the football the basketball the handball yeah that's your team and you you support them and there's there's sort of a sense of a whole club feel rather than a football club feel yeah. but the, the the football for me from what i see on tv and the tv programs fo football's massive football's king yeah i mean i certainly experienced that here in spain you know you, you think that Football in the UK is is king, or is, is the most popular. Is certainly you know takes up the most column inches and the most media space. Um, but I I wasn't completely prepared, if I'm honest, for, yeah. for what I, I I saw when I got here, which was wasn't so much about the participants, the the, the traditional participants, the age groups, the coaches, whatever, because I kind of expected all that. But it was more about the people around on the periphery. So you now when I walk down the street on an evening and I look into people's front rooms. Everyone has football on. 
I mean, I think in the UK, you know, the, I don't know, let's say, a, you know, an old couple watching the television, they might have EastEnders or whatever on, but here it feels like there's not a chance that anyone would have a soap opera on if there was any game on, on TV that could be watched. I mean, any game. Yeah. It's, it, it really feels like it's, it's it remains a passion and it remains such a part of the culture rather than just, you know, I guess it's, you know, the commercial we could talk all day about the money in the English game, but um, ultimately that's part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so a great example last night was... Um, we, we were looking at possibly moving our training session because the women's national team had a game. Yeah. So they, we were going to move it so the, the, the girls could watch the game because some of them, yeah. were, they wanted to watch it. Awesome. Uh, we, we couldn't do it. So what we ended up doing was watching the second half. And there was probably 15, 16 girls from our under-14s team that were in there watching the game on TV. Um, and then there was obviously a lot of media coverage on that. Uh, the sports, the football website here was covering it. And yeah, it was quite a big deal. So, and then they, they had a game the other day and it was exactly the same. And there's, there's sort of very little difference between the coverage of the men's and the women's. Yeah. It's, it's the national teams playing, whether that's football, whether it's handball, basketball. Uh, I don't know as much about basketball, but definitely handball. Um, like everywhere sort of just stops and it, it's, we must watch our country play and yeah. passionate about their country succeeding, which for me is great. And I, I've adopted that mentality and I awesome. can't, and there's one of my national teams now. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, it must be, it must be really refreshing as a coach, you know, working full time in the game to be, you know, to, to be in that situation because you know I think football gets criticised a lot by society in in the UK particularly, um, probably less so over here. So it must be great to be a part of this national obsession, this national, yeah. you know, because the enthusiasm and, and the positivity that surrounds that. I assume will be higher than it would be in the UK, for example. Yeah, 100%. There's obviously, there is football websites that will do the English stories, they'll do Icelandic stories, but it's, it's very rare. It's constant criticism. It's more sort of positive and look, wow. at what we, look at how well we're doing. It's great to see this player succeeding. And yeah, they, they're just, again, around the national team, especially the passion on, the, on a match day is is ridiculous like outside the stadium people doing the the the, the, the clap that obviously has become quite famous over here yeah uh, fans outside singing banging drums and there's just a real buzz around the area the stadium's full every time they play yeah okay so and, and do you think that's changed because of the success of the national team and you know the result against England and the Euros and, and yeah that, so- that particular phase yeah, obviously the, the team getting to the Euros was massive. I think about half the population travelled over to France to, to watch that. And um, yeah. yeah, I just I just find that the success they've had has just helped build the momentum of what they're doing. I think it's made Europe and, and the rest of the world take note of what they're doing here. And I, and I think, again, it's something to be, the country can be really proud of with what, they, what they're achieving. And I just think that momentum then into the World Cup um, and the people that were out watching the games, they had fan parks everywhere. Everyone was in their Iceland shirts. There was a massive sort of buzz around the country of what can what can we achieve? Yeah. And again, for for a country of such small people to get onto that world stage, and obviously they drew drew with Argentina. The goalkeeper saved the penalty. Um, yeah, that's just. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's amazing. We at the, at the time, I remember being amazed about it. I think time kind of dulls, you know. And you kind of forget a little bit, and you know, you, you know, you move on to the next thing. But when you when you look back on it, and you know, you look at the numbers, you like I say half the population traveling. I mean, that that's phenomenal. That is phenomenal, and that, you know, I I and I I, I, I recognise it, and I, and I can identify with it a little bit. You know, growing up and, and coming from a small island like Guernsey. Um, there's only 60,000 people, so much more example, and, and you know, obviously being involved, you know, playing and, and coaching and managing um, the pride and the national pride in a small small nation is is accentuated, is magnified. Um, you know, it gets lost and diluted in the bigger nations at times, doesn't it? Sadly. Yeah, hundred percent. And like I just said there, like we we would go out and watch the games with with Icelandic people. We'd go. And, Either go down to the um, like the fan park. I've been to a couple of games here, and just just the passion they have. It it because it, it, of the small population, it, it's sort of like a club team when they play as well. But everyone yeah. has 
shared passion and it would be like going to watch I know a, a League One, League Two club where obviously the, the you get more local supporters going for them games. Yeah, sure. But yeah, it's just it, it's great to say, and it's good to harness as well. Like for, for me personally, with with the goalkeeper that's been playing, he there's a his story is that he worked very hard. He would have his breaks from work. He would go and practice his kicking at the football club. Just yeah. him with the balls. Uh, he got extra training, progressed. I don't think he made his debut till he was 26, I think, in the national wow. team. He went pro around the same time. And it, he was, he, there's a bit, obviously, the big stories about him making Iceland's um, advert for the World Cup for Coca-Cola. So yeah. he was doing stuff like that. And I, I think that's just a great example for the kids over here that actually, if you do work hard and you have a, have a bit of talent and have a passion, then why, why can't you go and do it even if it is a little bit later on in your life? Amazing. Amazing. That's a great story. And it's great, like you say, for you to harness it as a coach, um, it's, it's phenomenal. So, I mean, I remember reading an awful lot about coach education, the development of the, the, the coaching culture in, in Iceland around the time of all that success. Yeah. Um, but what's your take on it? I mean, I'd like to know, I guess, how you just talked about harnessing, which is a great word, that really fantastic culture that's, that's been built up around the game and around sport in general. How do you, you know, how do you think it's been done to this point? You know, and, and do you think there's more that can be done? Yeah. So, so for me, like I said about their passion and their desire with football is so high. You, like I will see probably 50, 60 kids today at sort of three o'clock who have got a bag on their back with a football strap to it. And they just play, the kids just play football all the time. Obviously it helps being at the club and things. Uh, and being around where they can play football. But for, for me, it's just the constant playing and the time and the facilities that are available to them is is, is what has helped drive the success yeah. of development in this country. Of course, there's a lot about the coach education in the sense of there's X amount of uh, B, A licensed coaches per, per player, which to a certain extent is the case. Um, but again, with that small population, it's easy, It's a lot easier to get through people on the courses and and things like that, and get the teams on. And I mean, is, on and is it is it is it really as it's stated in the numbers? I mean, I, I know it's it's not here in Spain. I can I can I can say that categorically that, that you know the numbers here. It's it is a there's a I don't want to call it a, a box ticking exercise, but for me, the value of a coach you know, of, of the, the numbers around coach education and number numbers in certain categories don't equate to the same value that you get in the UK. That's just my opinion. But Yeah, I would I would agree to a certain extent. Obviously, in, in the UK, there's so many coaches. So that the maybe coaches that are just starting out or maybe coaches um, that are, are still educating them in the, in the early stages and then the sort of high-level experienced coaches there's such a broad gap between them, but there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the spectrum in between. Where yeah. you've got maybe there might only be six, seven thousand coaches here. So the guys who are just starting out on the top level, again, the, the amount in between is so small that yeah. you're going to have some coaches who may may have a B license, but they've got it early and they're still developing a lot or you might have a, an A-licensed coach in the same stage and they've gone through the process very quickly just based on the on the, the lack of numbers. So yeah. here, obviously it's a lot, I would say it's a lot easier to get on courses than it is back home yeah. due, due to the volume of coaches. Okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. Um, but, but but in terms of, you know, do you, do you think that Iceland has a future in terms of exporting coaches? Uh, I think they could. Um, the, there's a there's a few coaches here, especially in the men's Premier League, who uh, I've, I've not had a chance to see their sessions, but I've seen their teams play, and I've spoken to people with who who I believe has a, a good value with what they say. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a few coaches here who are very good. I believe there are some coaches in uh, Scandinavia, in Sweden, in the women's game. Uh, there was a few Icelandic guys that went out to um, to China. And there were the Chinese national teams in the women's uh, section. Uh, the current technical director of Hong Kong is, a, is an Icelandic coach. Okay. So there are people that are making the move abroad and, and going away. And 
Cool. I think I think there is is a chance, and they, they work closely with the Danish FA on their uh, A licenses. So they they're looking at other countries and how can we help our coaches to be better, to then hopefully progress to full time roles and then progress abroad and and start sort of making pathways in the co- uh, for coaches as well as players. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and to flip it. How how do you see the the influence of, uh, of of British coaches over there? I mean, you're you're, you're one of a one of a small band. Um, I, I would suggest over there, and there's there's quite a lot a lot in, in other Scandinavian countries as well. But you know, how do you see your impact? What are you bring into the game? Um, I, I just feel like as British coaches and co- like the, the guys I know worked in England, worked in Ireland, worked in America, and things. I just think it brings a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, on how maybe the game's played or how to conduct training sessions, yeah. especially from a coach-ed side of things. Sure. Um, and then the, the, the other one for me is, how, how can I put this in the, in the best words possible? Um, I just think we've, like for me personally, working with Burton and Colchester, I've had that um, first-hand experience of working in an academy, uh, working with an under-23 side with players who are getting first-team games in League 1, League 2. Um, I think you've got a bit of a better understanding than what maybe a coach with the same with the same sort of age and coaching years I've had of how can we help develop this player to maybe sell him abroad or to make him a first sure. player. And of course, as coaches here, we've worked with kids all the way through, and they're playing in the Icelandic Premier League, which is which is a good standard, and that that's a that's obviously a different skill set. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just think that knowledge you can bring from other people you've worked with back home and knowing what sort of it takes for professional players, I, th- I think that's what we can add to the game over here. Awesome, awesome. And, I mean, so, so do, do you think there's more, than, do you think that that's likely to continue, that trend is going to become more, you think a space for more, or does Iceland need more, more, more coaches to, uh, to assist with that process? I, I wouldn't say there's um, a massive need for it because the, the numbers of, players playing abroad, the, the amount of players that are getting sold from Icelandic clubs into Europe. It's quite prolific. It, it's so high, like yeah. talking with one club and they're, they're pretty much getting two players a year sold to wow. clubs in Europe, which productivity wise is, that's that's outrageous that you make yeah. it off two players a year. Uh, and like these boys aren't going to like random clubs that they've got one lad who went to Ajax. So there's an yeah. Icelandic lad playing for Ajax's youth team at the minute. Um, they've got players in in uh, youth academies in Serie B, like I said, they've got a lot playing out in in sort of Norway, Denmark, Sweden. Yeah. Uh, Runa Alex uh, Runason's obviously just gone to Arsenal. Yeah. You started off playing in Iceland, so just yeah, obviously, and then obviously you've got the, the big guys that are playing out there. So I, I don't know if there's a, a massive need for it as such, but I think it's a good to have. So I think it's always good to have a mixture. Of, yeah. Uh, Maybe local and, and foreign, whether that's players, whether that's coaches, and yeah. I think I think that's beneficial no matter where you are in the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Good answer, but yeah, that you know, like you say, the numbers that you know, if they're exporting, you know, that percentage of players out of their total total pool, you know, you've got to look at it and say they're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the club who I was like sort of referencing there, they they sold a goalkeeper to uh, Brentford. Yeah, um, so I think that was 2018. So we we actually played against him in his last game. So we we played him in the first division, and then a week later he's getting his medical at Brentford, and wow. he's played the championship for them. He's been out on loan, and yeah. So it, it doesn't matter what position they're playing, doesn't matter where they come from, whether they're from the city, whether they're from a small town. The, the players are getting opportunities, and that's a credit to the the clubs and and the players themselves for for what they're doing. For sure, for sure. Cool, great, great stuff, great stuff. Um, okay, I want to bring the conversation on a little bit to specifically goalkeeping because yep. you're the first goalkeeper that we've had on here. Um, I know I, I came to you a few years ago and asked you for a little bit of help with um, with, with, with goalkeeping topics and integration of goalkeeping in, into training sessions, not having a, a specific goalkeeping coach at the time working with me. Yep. Um, so tell me a little bit about your your views, I guess, on how that particular topic is developed in the last year, in your time in the game. Because I know, you know, if I think back to when I played or whatever, you know, the goalkeepers were largely, you know, we, everyone knows the story, but they were, they were stuck out either, you know, working on their own or working in pairs or whatever. You know, 
pretty much left to their own devices and then brought in when when either shooting or you know crossing or, or some activity that they could get involved in and they, they would play an active part in actually started and these days it's a lot different you know you certainly opened my eyes a little bit a few years ago on that so, so tell me some of your views on that and uh, how do you see it kind of being applied um so yes yeah, so like, like you're saying like, well i remember when i was younger so when i was sort of first starting off when i was six seven eight nine ten that finding a goalkeeper coach was nearly impossible it was only yeah. the professional clubs in the academies that had them and maybe the odd guy here and there. And I, I used to go to a, a weekend down in London and do a, a three-day training camp uh, so I could get some goalkeeper training for the for the year. And it was, that was always yeah. well, the highlight of the year for me was three days of training because I got to practice what, what I needed to do. Awesome. And then sort of from there, obviously, the, the amount of goalkeeper coaches that are becoming available for players to to develop a skill because it is it is a unique position in a team sport. Um, obviously, if you're, if you're a right-back, and you're controlling the ball. It's no different to if you're a goalkeeper or you're a striker. So there's that that bit stays similar whether you're an outfield coach, a goalkeeper coach. But then the, obviously adding the elements of catching crosses, saving shots, distributing yeah. your hands. It's so different that they you do need extra time and you do need people with that area of expertise to step in. Um, and so that side of things has grown a, a lot as you just as you just mentioned there from obviously when from back when you remember. Um, but over the last sort of maybe four or five years for me, the the value of a goalkeeper coach in terms of their opinion on on players or on tactics or how they can be utilised in a training session to work with the goalkeeper, uh, a back four, maybe the midfielders, whether that's a whether that's an in possession topic, an out of possession topic, uh, that's just grown rapidly, and and for me that's a great thing. So I've never wanted to be labelled as just a goalkeeper coach. Sure. I think because you go through your outfield qualifications at the same time, uh, you watch football. You, a lot of people have played outfield. A lot of people have played in goal. I just want to be seen as a, as a football coach. And not, okay. I don't want to be seen as a, a striker coach. I don't want to be seen as a midfielder coach. I don't want to be seen as an outfield coach. I just want to be someone that is that can add value across the board. And because really? maybe maybe you're the head coach. I'm your I'm employed as your goalkeeper coach, your assistant coach, whatever whatever label you want to give it. But maybe you can connect with one player extremely well, but maybe another player you, you don't connect with as well, but I connect with him or her. And I, I can then maybe drip feed information in another way to them uh, to enhance their performance. And then together we, we create a, a good team. I, sure. think that, I think that's the word I would use would be a coaching team. Yeah. So, it's no different between a goalkeeper's connection and a centre-back's connection. The staff have to be on the same team and on the same page as well. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, tactically, Nagelsmann says something along the lines of, um, he's only, he only believes that maybe 30% of the game is of management, it's tactical. It's, it's, you know, the rest of it is about human emotion. And um, as you say, from a from a goalkeeping coach, I mean, I, I know you know looking at goalkeeping coaches that I've worked with, both from a coaching perspective as a player, yeah, some of them were very quiet in the background, and some of them were very prominent because they have big personalities and they made a big difference in the dressing room, um, particularly if not quite so much on the training ground back in those days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can kind of identify with what you're saying there for sure. Um, but I, I mean, in terms of you know you you talk about yourself being a coach, uh, you know, across, you know, more of a generalist coach rather than just a goalkeeping coach. I mean, are you are you applying that in different ways at the moment? I mean, are you are you doing very technical stuff at one day and then another day you're doing something more generic? Yeah. So, um, so for me, with it depends what what team I'm working with and what age I'm working with. So, sure. with, with the uh, the youth players we've got at the club, then I, I will give them their specific goalkeeper coaching. Uh, and work with them and sort of liaise with the, with the head coach and their assistant coach on uh, how they're performing in games if I don't get to see them play. Okay. Sort of, if, if I'm noticing stuff with their passing or their receiving skills, I'd touch on with them, like, hey, can you have a little look at this? Yeah. And they'd flip it back to me and go, oh, look, we, we reckon he might have been out of position here on these shots or the high ball he's struggling with because he's moving early. And I, th and I think it's we, we have a good collaboration there that, I'll go and work with with their technical and tactical stuff in and around the goal because that is my 
for a lack of a better term, area of expertise. Well, that's your bread and butter, right? Yeah. And the, and but obviously, pe people aren't stupid. People can see, like, it doesn't matter whether what sort of coach you are. You can see if if people are making mistakes. You might not be able to correct it, but you can identify their mistakes, and maybe someone else can help you correct them. Um, sure. So we have good collaboration there. And then with with the uh, seniors, when I, especially with the men's side we'd work a lot on set pieces where I would lead and the, the head coach would drip feed into that. Awesome. Um, we, we'd work on uh, dealing with crosses. Um, I, I'd lead on that. And there, there were some days where he just wanted to step back um, and watch the, watch the session and instead of being fully immersed in it so he could see if there was anything yeah. needed tweaking. So then myself and the assistant coach at the time, we would we would split it and we would take take different aspects there and that that worked quite well in my opinion yeah. uh, same with the women's head coach now we, we're both in the office full time we're bouncing ideas off around session design and and how can we adapt this adjust this team selection um again look, looking again signings i'll be sent videos of, of players that we're looking to sign and i'll give my opinion on that really? so that that's how that's sort of how it works day to day with me I'll, I'll obviously, while the players are warming up, I'll take the goalkeepers. If we've decided that the goalkeepers are going to be in the whole session, then I'll, I'll look at working with them in, in the game or with them in the back four. And if we're playing a game or a phase of play, yeah. we'll, we'll schedule an extra training session. Um, okay. Like the, 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 the girls here for us are, are excellent. Like some days, if the men have got a game and we can't get on the pitch, they'll, they'll train at six o'clock in the morning before they go to work and before they go to school. So we'll do a training session. We we did one last Thursday, uh, from six six a.m. till till seven thirty in, in the morning, or seven till eight, whatever it was. But yeah, yeah they're, they're more than happy to train and push themselves. And if players are given that sort of commitment wow. to their development, then we we have to match that as a minimum. And I think collaboration is the best way to to get there. Awesome, awesome, wow, that's amazing. I mean. I mean, first of all, that you, you get that variety. I mean, it really sounds like an interesting role and a really enjoyable role and that you're valued uh, and that you get to work with players who've got that level of motivation. And, you know, you don't have to spend your time working on quite so much of the, the psych and social stuff to get them to the yeah. level where they're, they're achieving, you know, that they're hitting big numbers on, on those because, you know, you, it's already there. So you can work on the technical, the tactical and your craft ultimately and, and your passion. So Yeah, yeah, which... When I come over and I first heard about this, I was like, "Really? Like we? we used to, I was like, that's crazy. We used to do um, like kids camps as well. Like not sure. kids. We'd, we'd we'd have players come in, and this would be maybe uh, April, May time, so that they're still in school. And for like three, four days, we'd put a, a little session on at sort of seven o'clock in the morning for an hour. They'd come in, they'd train, they'd get some breakfast given to them at the club." And then they'd, they'd jump on their bikes and cycle off to school, and then they'd come back in the evening and, and train again. And wow. just like you say, when when you've got that level of motivation and passion to succeed, it just makes life so much better because oh. then training session rules are high intensity. The kids love being there. The seniors love being there. And you, you just yeah you just create this sort of they they create a great environment and it's one where if players are not in that same mold they either buy into it or they they get found out. It's amazing. Sounds like a wonderful culture to work in. I mean, are, are, are there any negatives? I mean, are there? Do, what, yeah, well, tell tell me a little bit. There must be some. Yeah, when, when you've got a session at uh, nine o'clock on a Saturday morning and, and it's minus twenty degrees with the wind ripping through and. You got like a foot of snow that you've got to clear off the pitch beforehand. <laughs> that, that's uh, that's that's not the greatest. I'm with you. I'm with you. But but it adds fortitude and uh, strength of character clearly to the players. Hundred percent. Like like I say, we, we probably had that scenario when I was here the first time. Probably five, six weeks, seven weeks, maybe even more. And not once did any of the kids send a message saying, "No, I can't make it today." They were never late. They were. We're, we start at this time, we'll get the snow shovels out and let's go. And some of the days it was that bad, we would just clear out the six-yard box in the goal and an area where we could shoot from because by the time we cleared the rest of it, it would have settled on the pitch again. Yeah. But kid, kids are used to it, they love it. So, wow. 
So yeah, it, it just it adds a different dimension to the session. Obviously, if you can do it in this weather, you can deal with shots and crosses when the ball's moving all over the place. What are you going to do when it's a nice, calm day? Yeah. I think it adds to the stress levels as well. If you can deal with the stress of this now, then a match day theoretically should be a lot easier and more comfortable and more enjoyable. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's certainly, you know, the, 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 the idea that a lot of young footballers are mollycoddled, certainly in yeah. the UK, um, and they don't have to do any of the manual stuff. You know, I remember working with YTs 18, 19 years ago, I'm just checking the year, a long time ago, and um, you know them, them doing the jobs and them, them getting, you know, fairly a fairly harsh experience at times. Certainly gave them, you know, a level of resilience um, that you don't get in modern players. And I know that's society, but it sounds like the balance might be about right over there because that 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 hasn't all gone in terms of the menial work and the expectations and the responsibility. Um, of everyone, you know, digging in for the team and digging in for whatever jobs need doing. Yeah, exactly. And that that was sort of similar in Taiwan as well. While I was there, it was um, we, for example, if we were moving the goals from onto the training pitch, it wasn't just the coaching staff. It wasn't just the youngest players. We've got guys playing full time in the in the Chinese first division on serious money, and they were the first guys picking up the goal. And it was it was a team effort. Uh, again, the, the same here. Like in terms of kids getting themselves to training, because because they all play in the, they come from the local community. You come down to my training ground on a summer's day in sort of in um, June, July, and you'll see like 150 bikes where the kids just cycling. They get themselves to the football pitch. They either training or playing with their mates. They'll cycle home, a bit like what it would have been 10, 15, year, 20 years ago in England. They've got yeah. that culture here. The kids will walk from school to the football pitch. They'll bring their own football so they can play until the till the time the session is. Um, and yeah, like sometimes you you have to like kick them off the pitch and say, look, get, get off. We we need to train. Oh. At the same time, if, if we're not using the whole area, then we'll be like, look, no problem. Practice your football. Play your head tennis. Play your really? those whatever it is here. It's not a problem. But we'll need this area in say forty minutes. And the kids yeah. like, yeah, no problem, thank you. And they, they really appreciate that. But yeah. the facilities from, it'll be unlocked from, uh, like it, it could be unlocked all, all the time uh, over the summer, 24-7. And the kids would just turn up at sort of 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning, would just start playing. And that there's, there's no none of this like back home where the pitch is constantly locked and you must pay 50, 60, 70 pounds to get on there. Yeah, it's just come and play, but understand that there are sessions on here and you, you will have to move when the session's on. Yeah. And it's just common sense, though. It's just a common sense way of doing it, isn't it? And, I mean, clearly you're working with kids who are, you know, respectful enough to, 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 to work within the boundaries that you set so that you can get the best out of the facility that you need because it's got to be the priority. But, yeah, why not let the kids the kids knock about on there? I mean, you know, we, we want to engender a love in the game and we want to, to help them prosper then. You know, it doesn't make sense, does it, to, to lock, you know, to put, put locks on the gates, particularly when you've got 4G, 3G pitches that, you know, can take the hammer. It's, you know, I understand, you know, on a, on a decent turf playing field, then fair enough, but it's a different kettle of fish on artificial grass. Yeah, exactly. I, I, when it would have been not last, yeah, not last week, week before. We had a sort of the, the coaches had a week off because um, of this, most of the youth seasons have finished. So, like, I kid you that you can have a week off and do whatever you want. Three o'clock, look out the window, what's going on? There's a 10v10 game. Kids have set the goals up on the pitch, uh, on like halfway across, playing in the half uh, horizontally. Um, I, I think there was uh, about 14 lads, six girls, and they, they just split the teams up and they just started playing and no one cared who was on what team. I think they were about 12, 13 years old. And they, they were, yeah, they just went and played. And I was, I was laughing with the women's manager, like, well, why are we actually here if the kids just do it anyway? They're probably having a better time than half, half the things. And they're, they're going to learn so much because they don't want to be rubbish in front of their mates. They, they want to be the best player because if you're the best player, you usually get the most friends. People want to pick you first. And, and you, you're well-liked. So, yeah, like, I think it's, yeah, it's, it, was, it was great to see. And that's one of the pleasures of having the office down there, just seeing what kids do and... How they go and play, and just I, I think back to the village where I'm from, back home, and there's two grass football pitches down there, and 
every time I go home and I've been around the area or I've not heard anyone playing football down there, I've not seen anyone, don't see any kids in the streets playing sport and it's it's refreshing to see really. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, that's you're going to make a lot of people jealous listening to this because there's a lot of coaches who are, you know, just crying out for, you know, A, an environment that, that enables kids to do that, but B, the kids who have got that, that passion to do that and that love for the game that's, you know, perhaps... Yeah, society these days stifles a little bit. I mean, what, what about the video games culture there? Is that is that an issue? Oh, all, all I ever hear the kids speaking about when I'm walking around in my very limited Icelandic is is Fortnite and TikTok and all this. So they're they're no different to any kids anywhere in the world. But it's just the the easy access from living in the no, local neighbourhood, and yeah. again the the culture here for me on a whole is eating relatively well, exercise, being with your family, taking advantage of being outdoors and in the nature. And obviously when the in the winter we might only get four hours of sunlight. So yeah. when the sun when it's twenty four hours or twenty hours of daylight, make the most of it. And and they do. And that that for me is one of the things that I, I, I like about this country and is is why I enjoy being here. Good, good. Oh that's that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant mate. Really, really like I say it, I'm quite jealous, to be honest, because it sounds like you've got an awful lot of ticks in the in the right boxes over there. It sounds amazing. Okay, um, you talked a little bit about Taiwan. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, um, I'm particularly interested to to understand. I mean, a huge cultural difference, obviously, from from the UK to Iceland to Taiwan. Yeah. Um, but but more so um, the difference from club club coaching to to national team coaching and the training camp culture. How how did you find that? Yeah, so like you said, the, the culture was was a big shock. The, the furthest east I'd ever been was I had a week in Turkey on a training camp. So we were in the hotel, we'd go to the pitch and train, back to yeah. the hotel, gym session or a meeting, and we might pop into the into the town and have a meal in a restaurant somewhere. And and that was it for, for a week. And so yeah, go, going over there was, again, it was a 16-hour flight, eight hours into Dubai eight hours into Taiwan, which was a shock for me. The longest I've been on a plane before was five hours. Um, yeah. Arriving and the the lack the lack of English uh, in in the city centre, everyone spoke English. Outside of that, it was very limited amounts, and that that sure. was a challenge trying to order food, go to the shop, listen to what was going on. Um, so not yeah, so you had that to deal with, and then. See, as a national team, you only get together international breaks, which are what uh, March, June, September, October, November. So you only see the team for probably two weeks, ten days, maybe five times a year. Yeah. Um, so going from coaching six days a week, probably two sessions a day, three sessions a day in some cases, to having no sessions for two months was was quite a quite a challenge and it is one one that I enjoyed to have because it gave me a lot more time to focus on other areas so planning reviewing um analyzing teams and players and yeah uh going to watch games and trying to select a squad um from that point of view it was something very different it was good to have and then like I say with the, with the planning you you would only get maybe three or four sessions so your planning and your session content and how you how much you kept the ball rolling and how much tactical advice you were getting across and and things like that had to be spot on so so for me it helped me that way in terms of um i wasn't just going from day to day to day putting sessions on um and just going oh yeah well, some days you might oh we'll just we'll just do this because it might be convenient there you, you don't have convenience you you have to nail it and your session has to be spot on yeah, we're players who are competing at the highest, in my opinion, the highest level of the game. To represent your country and play for your country means it doesn't matter whether you're from England or whether you're from, if I take a small population like Iceland, it doesn't matter where you're from, you are still the best person in that position sure. in your country. Yeah, massive privilege, yeah. It, it, that, that's an achievement and playing against a team like Australia who have got Premier League players playing in them, if, you, if you're not preparing you're going to get beat 12, potentially 13, 14 nil. Uh, not even going to get a shot on goal, not going to get out of your half, whatever it might be. So I think they, they were the biggest differences of going in there. But 
the, the hardest one and going the other way would be uh, connecting with players. Yeah. Don't, you don't see them very often. You're not with them in the morning. You don't see them at breakfast. You go, hey, how's it going? What are you up to? You, you just see them maybe at a game uh, and then you see them on camps and that, that was what, quite... What, why was that? Why, why, why didn't you get more downtime with them? Because obviously they were training with their clubs. Um, obviously, we, if, we, if we were going into clubs and it looked like we are favouring clubs, then obviously that's, that's not a good position to put yourself in. Um, I was quite fortunate because, um, again, working there with Louis, Louis, Louis was excellent and his ideas were very good and we come up with the idea to go into every club or at least offer every club um, my services to coach their goalkeepers because yeah. goalkeeper coaching over there is what England was like probably 30 years ago. Okay. okay. Very, very few goalkeeper coaches. Um, so, yeah, so we, we provided an option for every Taiwanese Premier League club that I would go and do a session um, and make it available for every goalkeeper from, from the league to attend. Uh, so I, I managed to build my relationship that way. Obviously, occasionally you'd go out and have maybe a meal with some of the players. But when we, we've got sort of, um, we had a boy playing uh, for Crystal Palace in England. Um, we had a boy playing in Canada. We had maybe three or four players playing in China. So yeah. it's not like you can just go and meet with them. So it was stuff on the phone. And, no, but on, on the camps, on the camps, did you, did you, was yeah, it more of a holistic kind of, you know, you, you get the group activities? On the camps, obviously, it was a lot different. So, like, if you when we went down to breakfast, you'd see the players at lunch. Sure. We'd have individual meetings, group meetings and stuff like that. But it, it's it's just nowhere near the same exposure you get on a day-to-day -day basis, obviously, if you work in professionally at a club and... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, no, yeah no. Like, even, even if you're working, if you're working for a grassroots club, you'll probably see your kids two, three times a week, potentially. Yeah. And, but that's every single week of the year. Yeah. So you can build them relationships and it, and you have, obviously you have a lot in common. The, the language barrier as well was also a, an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, that, that, it feels to me like that would have been a bigger, yeah. a bigger one really, because to connect, I mean, you know, language is, and, and verbal communication is so important if you if time is limited if time isn't limited i mean like over here for example when i'm when i'm coaching you know i speak some spanish but certainly in the early days when i didn't speak any or very little spanish it you know i, I couldn't i couldn't have built a relationship with with a team i could go and technically deliver a session yep. but if i had to influence the people mm -hmm. I, you need more time to be able to do it and um, yep. I, my assumption is it'd be the same yeah it's, for me it was exactly the same um Obviously, when you're out on the grass and you're, you're doing the session and if the session's enjoyable and you're having a little laugh or something funny happens, yeah. someone scores a, a decent goal and you start cheering, celebrating, that, it doesn't matter what language you speak, everyone knows what that yeah. is. You, build, you can build a connection that way, which was good. But obviously, at times, like, I'll be trying to have a conversation or Louis would be having a conversation and it would be we would say what we need to say and then the translator would then translate it but maybe wouldn't say it in the same tone sure, or sure. You know, like whether we was excited angry whatever it might be it would just be right i'm just going to translate word for word so the player would be sitting there they'd listen they would then say what they've got to say back and then it would translate it and obviously takes takes twice as much time as well so yeah you might have 10 minute 15 minute slot to talk to that player but you're actually probably only getting seven minutes of conversation in yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it's such a good point. There. It's never really occurred to me. It's, it's fairly obvious, but like you say, the tone of voice and how you want to deliver it yeah. um, with a translator. You know, I, I hope that the best translators out there, maybe Mourinho did this for, for, for Bobby Robson as an example. You know, if he's going to deliver something with gusto because he's not happy about something or he wants to fire a warning shot across a few players, then there's absolutely no point in doing that if, <laughs> if the translator's completely deadpan and, as you say, just literally translates it without adding emotion. Yeah, exactly. And what, one of the good things we did as well, and it, obviously we spent, Louis and I spent a lot of time together over there and we managed to talk a lot of football and about plans and we we would we would just we would speak with the translators. Their English was fantastic, and we'd be like, look, if if we shout, we need you to shout. If we are saying it in a joking manner, we we need you to do that yeah, as well. Yeah, good. We would ha we would have conversations and maybe run through we would run through our sessions with whoever we were working with, so they they knew what we were looking to get out. Um, 
they they knew what we were going to be doing next and if they had any questions about what we were doing they already knew what the answer was so it weren't like in the session you would say right we're going to do this uh, what about this bit they they knew what was going to be happening and yeah so, so, the, so the basics they, they were able to deliver themselves so yeah. just lose any confusion and yeah because that was the main thing obviously when you're dealing with high level players you that you, you one you need to know your stuff and and two you need to keep them engaged you need to keep challenging them and if if communication breaks down anywhere then yeah. people start losing focus and then you could potentially lose credibility but for, fortunately for us i thought we we dealt with that very well and yeah but the time over there was very was very good and the goalkeepers my mandarin got a little bit better i could <laughs> say i could instruct a few things and the, the goalkeepers english improved as well and but between the four six of them that we would have coming into the camps they they would be able to piece together everything that was going on yeah. and it got to a stage where i probably we probably only needed translation for maybe key tactical details whereas yes. demonstrations were good um getting them to observe each other worked and it, yeah it was just a, a lot of different coaching methods that you may not use if you if you speak the same language fluently yeah it's a great it's a great challenge it certainly stretched me and i think it's you know i think any coach to get not saying you need to go and work in another country to you know permanently and change change your whole life but any coach to go and try and and, and do a little bit of coaching in another language and and then have to rely on non-verbal communication and, and other kind of little little tactics that you might be able to deploy to, to get your message across and to affect the players and to get you know get some progression um, for the players is i think it's, it's a huge learning tool a huge opportunity and um, so, so you, you talked about louis louis lancaster there obviously working with louis um with the the Taiwan national team yeah. how i mean if, if you had that time again and, and you were you were in the hot seat and in, 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 and louis you know you, you you were in louis role how, how do you think you would structure it given that because your work day to day in Reykjavik is is long term. You know, you're, you're looking at player development medium to long term, really, aren't you? You know, working with younger players a lot of the time, and and therefore it's not about the results on Saturday. Whereas, you know, that's your perspective there. Your perspective mm -hmm. in training camps and World Cup qualifiers and Asian Cup qualifiers or whatever, you, you you've got to get take it down and crystallise it and distill it and deliver something completely different you know the objectives are completely different so i mean given that how, how do, you, do you think the two scenarios different how would you apply that uh well if i was in if i was if i was back there in his shoes uh, that's a very good question i i don't think i'd do a lot differently there if i'm going to be honest with you because yeah. we we had we had two jobs basically one was obviously to get results for the national team and try and progress to get into the asia cup and into the next stage of the the world cup qualifying and stuff like that and the the other job was to was to develop the players because obviously ta taiwan is ranked i think we we're 125th or 26th when we were there so obviously quite quite low down in the rankings so we, we still had to develop players and work on the coach ed side of things to try yeah. and help coaches develop and to, to sort of create a pathway for the youth national players and and to liaise with their coaches and try and come to a common goal about raising the profile and the um, yeah I get it. so it's so, so slightly slightly more you know a slightly bigger role in terms of guidance you know for, for for a nation rather than just a group of players and results yeah exactly so you take someone like gareth southgate for example he his only i say his only that that's that's a harsh term to use um but his, his main role is to get the team to win games to qualify for sure, tournaments sure. and and to win tournaments yeah he, he doesn't need to go oh i need to develop my left back because he's got 10 15 20 left backs playing premier league football champions championship football who he can rely on to come and play games for him whereas we might only have three left backs yeah or two left backs even and okay how can we get the most out of this player how can we develop him and how can we liaise with clubs and to to make sure they're getting what they need to play for us as well as their, their club team I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, it's. The, it, I mean, for me, I I look at it and think, you know, certainly from experience working with a smaller, a smaller nation in Guernsey. But um, the the challenge with that, I think, is if you try and coach mm -hmm. and you spend too much time on coaching and not enough time on 
clarity of message, clarity of game plan uh, and understanding, then you, you, you know, the, the balance is difficult to get right, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree with you there. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, just 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 to finish off with, because we're, we're coming towards the end of the, the discussion, I mean, you, you must be one of the most adaptable coaches out there. I mean, you know, there's some great work being done by, by British coaches in, in, in lots of different nations around the world. And, and, and luckily, they're getting more exposure and more, you know, the, 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 their learnings are being shared, you know, far and wide, which hopefully, you know, this will this will add a small piece to that process. Um, but yeah, such an such an adaptable kind of guy, given that you you know you've worked from the Far East, you know, to, to Scandinavia. Um, how I mean, what what are the key learnings for you? What what do you think the difference uh, has made? What, what do you think that experience has, has? What difference? Sorry, do you think that experience has made to you if you compared Jamie Brassington, who's who's travelled all over the world and, and you know delivered in different languages, different cultures, and so on and so forth, to Jamie Brassington, who could have stayed with Burton, Colchester, you know, in the academy system, and no doubt had a great experience, and, and perhaps maybe, possibly even had a higher profile in certain circles. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you compare those two, and, and, and how do you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I, I had a conversation around this sort of the other day. I think, I think it depends on the on like who the, who the person is that's doing this. So for me, I, a coaching abroad was always something I wanted to do because I, I like to learn new things. I like to visit new places. Yeah. Part of a different culture. Because at the end of the day, football's football. Wherever you play, wherever you work in, it obviously is 11 v 11. Whoever scores the, the most at one end and stops them at the other is, is going to win games. Yeah. So on, on a purely football point of view, for, for me, it, it's not that different. Obviously, the, the standard of player or the standard of facilities does change. Uh, but I, I just feel that it's, it, like you said, I think adaptable is, is the big word. I, I feel that I'm, I'm, if you throw me into an environment, whether it's with a group of novice players or senior players um, who, again, who might have international, 100 international caps, for example, I just think what what you learn by coaching different people, uh, how you can adapt to that situation, how you can identify their needs. I think my ability to do that has has got a lot better than what I think it would have if I'd have stayed at home and followed that academy path. Uh, working with seniors was something I've always wanted to do, but in the most sort of professional environments I can. And obviously the opportunity of working abroad um, adds to that value and adds to that opportunity. Uh, so I think me sort of being able to follow what I want to do was was um, is how that's helped me as well. And I would say it's made me a lot more happier than doing my coaching and stuff. Yeah. I was very at Colchester. I was enjoying my job. I was working with great players. The staff there were excellent. Yeah. So a lot we we had a we had a great blend of uh, just people who had come purely through the coaching background. And just played sort of grassroots football. Never really played any senior, um, semi-pro stuff. We had guys that were scholars at the club who then dropped out of the game and come in coaching. We had guys who had played, who had won championship playoff final. We have guys that have played in the Premier League um, for many different managers. Uh, we had guys who played for their country. We had guys who played in European competitions. So sort of that blend of people and that sort of wide range of um, experiences, that that was a massive help, and that sort of that's that would that was probably the biggest thing I missed moving here because um, the the experience of the coaches were, were very different. But yeah, yeah, their, their different experiences again was something I could learn from and take from. So I just feel that again the, the amount of people that I've met and. That, that again has opened up my eyes to different ways to work, different ways to connect with players, stuff that might be seen in, in England as, oh no, that's a big no-no, you can't do that. Here, for example, it, it's no problem. I, Asia, was, Asia was pretty pretty similar as well. Like, Taiwan and Iceland are, are very similar, but in, and I know that sounds a very strange thing to say. <laughs> but yeah, so going from there, the transition and sort of what I could pick up from there is just accelerated my my learning to a to a level that maybe it wouldn't have happened if i'd have stayed it might have i don't know but yeah. like i said i think that the most important for me thing for me was being happy and if i'm happy i'm, I'm going to be giving the best every day to the players i work with 
because yeah. they're, they're the people that matter the most. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's you, you come across as a much more assured coach. I think it might, you know, in the time that I've known you, you know, the, the, what you've added and the confidence that you have, because it translates into confidence, I think, doesn't it? You know, you, you, you've coached all over the world, you've coached in different languages, you've coached at different levels, you know, World, world Cup type, type stuff all the way down to, you know, an under, under 11's game on a, on a Sunday morning, whatever, uh, both of which are equally important in different contexts. Yeah. And yet, you, you know, you, you, it doesn't really mean that there's anything, anything, anything should hold too much fear for you. Um, whatever you, whatever the future holds for you. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I think I've been, I, I don't like using the term lucky. I've Obviously, I've been fortunate for opportunities that have come my way, but I think you make your own sort of fortune. In the like when I was, I got, I went, I went out of college uh, back home. I was working two days a week part-time there coaching. And then I got another part-time coaching job and another one sort of working three part-time jobs at one time. Yeah. Then yeah, I, I know how hard you work, for sure. Going full-time at the college then and, and progressing on. There, there was days where I'd leave my house at 9am and I'd get back at 11pm. Uh, yeah. Then that would be, I'd do, say, three, four days like that coaching and two days like that um, tra uh, training and playing myself. Yeah. And I just think all them opportunities that I opened myself up to has then allowed for this sort of life and being able to to experience what other other countries have and what other football's going on in the world, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I someone said to me, "Come and coach our under nines. Yeah, no problem. I'd be more than happy to if if yeah. I'm around. And I, I would, I would actually coaching a group of a, a six year olds. I would find more scary than going to work for Barcelona or someone like I, that. I am with you 100%. I mean, seriously, that's Lions Den stuff for me. That that's a real challenge, and it takes a it takes a particular skill set. Um, and doing it can can add add layers to your 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 coaching capability, without a doubt. Hundred percent. Like the, the the biggest thing that I've found in for me in football, and like you say about confidence and stuff, and there's, there's a reason why people play football and they love it. And it doesn't matter if they're six or thirty six or ninety six. They love it because that's the game they fell in love with as a kid. Yeah. And, and again, the stealing this from Louis, we were always looking at, can we bring out the kid in everyone that we're coaching? Yeah. And so, yeah, so that, that for me is why maybe come across as confident. I don't know. It's just, you'd, I just treat the, the young ones like the adults and the adults like the young ones and, and find that happy balance. And it seems to work so far. So we'll, we'll right. keep running with it, keep learning and seeing what happens. Well, let's say if, if if I may be so bold, you come across as very confident in your own skin without being too confident, without being cocky or whatever. Just like I say, assured is the word I would use. And as I say, I I, I think back to conversations and, and, and spend a little bit of time with you a few years ago, and and I, I see growth and 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 you know like like I say those layers and that confidence that it brings because of all these amazing experiences. So more power to you and. Um, Wow, you know, you're still pretty young, so there's an awful lot more ahead, ahead for you. I mean, what, 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 what are your aims? I know you've got a great, a great gig and a fantastic place at the moment, but you know, what do you think you might fancy doing and turning your hand to in the future? Um, see, I'm, 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 obviously, there's stuff that I want to, I want to achieve in football, um, and that, that's obviously going through. Hopefully, one day working at the, the very highest level and, and winning trophies, whether that's in Spain, Italy, Germany. I, I'm, I'm not gonna say, oh, I must coach this team because yeah. you close off so many opportunities to yourself that like, I, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought I'd be in, in Asia. I, I didn't know where I was going to go. So so for me, am, am I happy with what I'm doing and where I am? If I, if I am, that's great. Have I got the ability to help players achieve their goals? Because like I said earlier, that at the end of the day, that, that's why I coach. I don't coach for me. That's I coach for them. If, can, can I give them that experience or facilitate something where they can strive to be the best they can be and for me nothing would be happy if, if I coach the kid and he goes and signs for Man United I'd, I'd be more happy with that than picking up a, an FA Cup winner's medal for example and, yeah. and so yeah so in terms of that um, yeah it's just about the happiness for me really and, and see where it goes I, I wouldn't like I wouldn't rule out anywhere obviously I, I don't fancy going to war-torn countries but 
but you never yeah. know. It, it could again, it could be a, an amazing opportunity to work with some great people, and you don't know these things till you try it. And my, awesome. my plan, my my immediate plans is to try and help the the team I'm working with stay in the league. Because um, if we do that, that'll be the first time they've ever survived in the in the women's Premier League over here. Yeah. So great achievement for the club and everyone involved and then uh, I'm I'm contracted here till December and we'll, we'll see if something comes in here then that would be fantastic I, I, I'd love to stay but obviously with the Covid situation and finances and, and all that sort of stuff it's a bit uh, up and down at the minute so of no one's happening of course yeah cool okay well Jamie we're going to wrap it up on that note um yeah, first of all, obviously, I just want to say thank you for your time. Um, that, that hour or more than an hour has flown by as I expected it would do. Um, really, really love listening to you talk about football. Um, love listening to your experiences. And, and I'm pretty certain that a lot of people out there are going to feel the same. Um, you know, it's an inspirational journey to, to some degree, but but also, you know, there's, there's, there's just small, small little kind of snippets of experience that you're sharing there that I think, you know, make me reflect. I mean, you know, just... That one with the translate later and the emotion for example that never really occurred to me a huge amount and i think the people listening to this if they're coaches particularly i think will will no doubt have learned something and um and maybe got a little bit of inspiration as well so um i really really appreciate you, you giving us some time um wish you all the best for whatever the future holds certainly in the short term in iceland and Reykjavik there with throtta and um yeah whatever whatever comes in in 2021 covid or no covid crisis um i'm pretty sure you're prepared for whatever's coming to you no i appreciate that and thanks for having me on it's been great i could talk about football all day every day and yeah, yeah i'll probably bore a lot of people but yeah <laughs> well listen kindred spirits mate we've, we've done it before and i'm sure we'll do it plenty in the future but uh i think to, to you know to share some of that with um the people who tune into this i think um I, it was something i really wanted to do and i'm really pleased that I, uh, we, we've done this and i'm looking forward to how it's received no, I'm happy to help. And again, if, if anyone wants to get in contact about this, then see social media, email. I, I'm a big believer in answering people, uh, send messages, whether it's yes, I can help or no, I can't. And so if anyone it does enjoy it that much and wants to talk further, then feel free to get in contact. Top man. Well, you heard the man. So uh, so, so go on. I hope people take uh, take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, happy to help. Good man, good man. Okay, Jamie, all the best, pal. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. Take care, pal. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye.